We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hi, I'm Stefan, and I'm an alcoholic, and my sobriety date is November 15th, 2014. It's really good to be here. I've never, never done a, a podcast or anything like this, so uh, just bear with me. You know, so the, the, the one thing that I, I like to do when I, when I qualify is to kind of tell, say, h- how it is now, and then compare that to my last day of drinking. So uh, I guess for the now, I, I woke up this morning. I went to a meeting of AA. I went to my home group. It's at 7.15. So I went to 7.15 to 8.15, came home, uh, hung out with my family, fed our baby. We have an 18-month-old boy. My mom was over, so we kind of spent some time with my mom, took a nap, went for a run, and now I'm doing this qualification. That kind of compares to my the last day I had a drink. I was in Long Island visiting my mom. Uh, went back to from Long Island to New York City. I lived in New York City at the time. Somewhere in between, I got drunk on on the train ride or before the train ride. I went to the store, picked up some drinks, got a little you know buzzed, and ended up in like MSG, like in the MSG area near uh, the what do you call it, Penn Station, and. And there's a TJF in the Penn Station, and I somehow ended up in there. Don't remember what what I did. There's a police station right across from the TJF. I guess I had been saying some paranoid things, like I wasn't very well at the time. Like I said, I was still obviously still drinking. And the next thing I remember is I was in the back of a van and don't the brown out. Like don't really remember what's going on. And I was given the choice of either going to jail or for some for not no I, I didn't know why, or to go to Bellevue, uh, you know, the psychiatric hospital. And I chose Bellevue, which I think was a wise choice. And then I went to Bellevue and I was there for a couple of weeks or ten days or something like that. So that was my last day of drinking. And so to me, that's in a nutshell, that summarizes what AA has done for me. You know, today I I live a a life. I I feel like I live a useful life. I'm helpful. I'm happy. I feel a lot of joy. I think I I give others joy. And in the past, that's pretty much the opposite of of what I did. So that's always a good kind of reminder, uh, you know, where I came from and where I am today and to be very grateful to AA because without AA, I would not have that that transformation would not have happened. And I've seen it happen in, in, uh, you know, countless people. This program works if you work it. There's proof. Like I, you know, I've sponsored people that have completely transformed, and I'm that kind of a person. Like I need to see proof uh, before I really buy into something. And you know, like over the years, like I've seven and a half years now. I've, I've, and I've been in the 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 rooms for twenty. Like it, it took me twenty to get seven. I'm one of those. So, you know, I've seen enough miracles that I now strongly believe in a higher power and a kind, loving higher power that wants me to do well and that wants everybody else to do well, pretty much. So I guess starting at the beginning, to me, like personally, I think I was born an alcoholic. 
that doesn't necessarily that has nothing to do with alcohol that has something to do with alcoholism so i from my earliest memories and i don't have too many for whatever reason but from my earliest memories i had that ism which told me that i was not a part of that i was separate from basically you know i remember that as a kid it made me very uncomfortable i grew up in germany so that we also my family was from switzerland and i grew up in germany which made me feel like an i just found excuses basically to be to, to feel like an outsider and i noticed that later on when we moved to the u.s as well you know my, my disease kind of latches on to things like that to self-destruct basically so in germany you know i was very young we moved to the u.s when i was 10 so i found but i always found these solutions whether it was drinking or or not i found solutions to my my ism so basically i started playing soccer and i didn't stop i just obsessively played and played and played and played and i think what that did is i think it made me feel connected to something so that whole being apart from and being disconnected from to me my alcoholism is is a lot of feeling of disconnection i think the solution like the spiritual part of this program is getting connected to not only the the program and the people, my, our families at work, but also to, to kind of to ourselves, you know, like that unsuspecting inner resource that it talks about in the big book, really just connecting with with the universe. And, and that's kind of what, what my belief of my higher, higher power is. So I, I had found always found these these ways to kind of get out of myself and to find that connection. So the first one with, was with soccer, like I wouldn't come inside. I would play all night. It got dark. My mom would like look for for me, like, "Hey, where's Stefan? Oh, he must be outside playing somewhere on the street." And then that kind of worked for a little while. And then when I was ten years old, we moved to Long Island, which was a complete culture shock for a ten year old. I didn't speak any English, so like I said, my my alcoholism kind of latched onto that and made me again feel a bit very apart from and that was my state of mind basically from 10 to 14 my first rank was at 14 i should also say that my my dad was an alcoholic he has he's since passed but um and he never he never found the solution of aa he was very kind of european mindset so he you know didn't really uh look at that look at himself uh, or do that 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 inventory uh, work that we kind of do so to me, there's also there's a genetic com- component. I know you know it's different for everyone. I know a lot of people who do not have al- you know alcoholism in their family, and they're they're alcoholics. It's it's self-identifying basically. But to me, it's like on my dad's side of the family that there's a lot of it basically. You know, for generations. So we came here to Long Island, and um, from ten to fourteen, it was that was like a really hard time in my life. Depression was also a big part. Of, of my story. That's when I first started feeling depressed without knowing what it was. I just felt very alone and isolated. And, um, and then on a trip, I still went back to, we went back to Europe quite a bit. And I went on my first solo trip to Europe, to Switzerland when I was 14. And I went out with my cousin who I looked up to very much. He was older and he, I think he was 18 at the time. And he took me to a bar and there's no real drinking age there or not no enforced drinking age. So I, uh, I got drunk for the first time. And like I said, I, I don't really have too many memories 
of my childhood or even, you know, even my twenties. No, no, no. (laughs) There's probably a reason for that. I do have a memory of that and what it felt like. And I remember I thought this was the answer. I felt freedom. I thought this was bondage of self had just lifted basically later on in in the steps, I, I learned what the real solution was. But at the time, I was kind of under the impression that, wow, okay, all my problems just got fixed, basically. And it's really easy. Like, I don't have to play soccer for all these hours. I don't have to do schoolwork like a, like a lunatic. That's another thing I just kind of overachieved throughout my life. I thought I found the answer. And it did kind of feel like, I have to be honest, it felt like a little bit like a, like a spiritual moment, that, that lifting of all the heaviness. That was my first experience that hooked me right away. I've heard alcoholism described as a shell game, that game where you you have the multiple cups and the and the ball underneath and then you can you show the the ball and then all of a sudden it's gone. And that's exactly what happened to me with drinking. So it never got as good as it was that first time. And I chased it like really hard because like I said I was kind of an obsessive person. So you know, I, I really, really, really wanted to make this work and make this solution work because I thought it was it was so so, so simple. And um, so I went home. I remember my, my cousin said at the time, he said, oh, you drink just like Heinz. And Heinz is my dad. And um, and that made my ego feel really good. <clears throat> good. I felt like a man basically at 14. And my dad was still alive at the time. I'd seen him drink and I'd seen what it, what it does to the family and what, what it did to my mom. My mom's been, been in Al-Anon since 1989. So that program has helped her tremendously. Like I really, really advocate that for, you know, anybody who needs that really works. So then I went back to Long Island and I kind of introduced this uh, elixir that I thought I had found to my friends and felt consequences right away, basically. I blacked out that first night I blacked out. So I was a blackout drunk. I, at first, I think it was kind of more funny than anything else. Oh, look what Stefan did again. You know, like he fell over, like he, I could drink a lot. And that's another thing that my ego kind of latched onto. And I was like, oh, so this is kind of like, this is made for me. I'm good at this. Not really paying attention to the facts, you know, and the facts were I felt consequences or had I had consequences right away. Basically, I was pretty competitive at soccer uh, when we moved to Long Island, and that kind of went away when I started drinking. Well, that took a backseat. I started going out to nightclubs and things like that way too early. You know, I had my brother's ID. We would go out. It just uh, it it didn't end well. Like I would end up in these ridiculous situations that at the time, again, like my me and my friend, my friends loved hanging out with me because I I always did something really stupid. So they would like they would egg me on almost. Uh, you know, I remember one time I uh, I woke up in the woods. I guess the there was like a club near the woods, and I blacked out. And I don't remember where I went, and they were everybody was looking for me. And the next morning, I kind of like walked out disheveled with like leaves on me. And you know that was like my mom and dad and brother. I have an older brother, two years older. They were all looking for me, and I, I like thought this was funny, and I called myself the woodsman for the next uh, few years after that. Just completely selfish and self-centered. All I really cared about was feeling good, feeling 
that you know that whole bondage of self thing gone just kind of get getting the the drunk and and it didn't didn't really matter who I who I hurt in the process and it would get it, it would get much worse so my my brother uh he's 2 years older not an alcoholic uh totally normal like takes off after my mom I take take after my dad and I was an alcoholic and he took after my mom and he uh, is not an alcoholic, so he was always kind of, and he's two years older, so he always kind of felt like he should take care of me, you know. We had we had these parties in high school that we both went to. We just, I guess, some people stole like pole vaulting mats from our from our high school gym and and brought them over into the woods, and we would just get like really drunk, like dangerously drunk in the woods there too i mean i would wake up some mornings like in a comatose state really dangerous looking back so that was high school basically then i graduated went to college i went to a really good school uh, because like i said i kind of obsessed about schoolwork as well and studied really hard and got really good grades and now i i understand why i had trouble admitting complete defeat uh you know why, why i had trouble surrendering in the first step. And I, I think this is actually kind of common from what I've heard. I got the first part of the first step. I'm powerless over alcohol. I got that the first time I felt drunk. The first time I, I felt the effect of alcohol on me, like I knew that I was powerless over alcohol. I knew this thing was stronger than me. Like I, I felt it. Like I didn't know it intellectually, but I felt it. But the second part of the first step that my life was unmanageable that I did not feel because, you know, I was a workaholic and whatever I did, I, I really made up for when I would drink, I would be hung over for two days, basically couldn't do anything for two days. And then I would study like a madman for the next three or four, uh, sleep very little mentally. I wasn't all that well. I have a mental illness too. Uh, I'm bi- I have bipolar disorder, which had been uh, you know, diagnosed with uh, long ago, basically. And that's another thing. A lot of people, I think, in, in AA have mental illness. And for me, my mental illness is is very, it's a f- fine line between where my alcoholism ends and where my mental illness starts or end the opposite. But I do know that when I do not drink and I take my medication because I take medication, I feel better. My depression goes away. I'm not manic ever. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm like right in the middle. I'm balanced. But I've also had the, the opportunity to, or not opportunity, but I've also taken medication while drinking and it doesn't do anything. So I think a, a lot of people come in with like these dual kind of things, mentally ill and drinking. And it's like, the chicken or the egg like you can't you have to treat one to treat the other like you can't it doesn't you know so i had to learn that the hard way because i got pretty pretty depressed in in college now in college i'm still doing the same thing i'm going out now alone right so because i don't have i didn't have many friends i've always kind of been a loner so i would go out alone get really drunk before i went out to a club or something i was in boston and i would wake up in the hospital and that hadn't happened before. Like that started when I when I went to college. So it's a progressive disease for sure. And for me, that progression kind of really started when I, I went, lived away from my parents, basically. 
So I would keep and I would keep waking up in the same hospital with the same nurses, uh, Beth Israel, over and over and over. And they just got like so, I don't know if it's frustration or the, and concern because sometimes I, I was in really poor shape. You know, I ended up, I can't, I stopped, they found me in an alley. Uh, one night and I stopped breathing. So they had to resuscitate me. And then I was in an ICU for a few days and they had to call my mom and dad at three in the morning who lived in Long Island. Then they'd come up to visit me at three in the morning in Boston. And now again, like I kind of juxtapose that with my, what my life is like now. And it's completely different. It's like I'm a new person. And actually, as I, as I, as I'm kind of talking about this, I don't really remember the person that I was before. It's almost like I'm talking about like an actor in a movie or something, because I do think I ha- I've had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps in AA, and I am no longer the same person that I was before. And a spiritual awakening to me at first, I was very confused about what that was. And this is like some big dramatic event. And it's really, you know, it says it in, in the appendix, the spiritual appendix. It just, it's just, it's a personality change, basically. So my personality has, has changed from that person that I've been describing um, that felt a lot of pain, a lot of pain and put a lot of other people through a lot of pain to someone today who, like, I definitely am not perfect, but I have these sets of principles to live by that I kind of do my, I do my best to live by them. The second half of the 12th step, practice these principles in all our affairs. So that's kind of where I'm at now. I do my best. I'm not perfect. And when I'm not, I feel it. And then I just get, get back on my horse, get back on the horse and, um, and go to more meetings and pick up my program and things like that. So back to college, I guess. So I'd, waking up in these hospitals now the like i said progression had had picked up and and by now it's really started getting dangerous and my parents were really concerned they actually at that point i guess i was like 20 years old and my mom took out a life insurance policy on me which uh, <laughs> you know it, that wasn't the I, I i took great offense to that because i thought at the time like oh my god you know what do you think i'm going i'm going to die do you think I'm that bad? And the reality is that that was a smart move on their part. Like I can see it now and I totally understand. They also, I remember I was going to go to Switzerland again on a trip and they kind of knew who I was going to hang out with and they knew people, places and things basically, which is definitely a fact. If you keep hanging out with the same people in the same places and doing the same things, you will get the same result every time. So I had these plans to go to Switzerland alone again. So they said, uh, or my mom and dad said, hey, if you want to go, you have to go to an outpatient rehab first. And that was in 2002, I think. So that, like I said, 20 years ago. From this rehab, that's where I was first uh, introduced to AA or the concept of AA. Like I didn't go to a meeting at that point. But I heard people talking the language. And that's the one, I mean, I love that about AA. Like wherever you go, people speak your language. And it doesn't matter. Like I travel quite a bit now and it doesn't matter where I am. I can go into a room, I can sit down and I can feel comfortable and I can speak people the same language that other people are speaking, which I, you know, can't say outside of AA, to be honest. So yeah, and, and I don't remember too much about that, the outpatient, but I, do remember i remember looking in a guy's eyes 
and he had these clear blue eyes and he was like, it's going to get better. And I believed him. No idea why. No idea why I remember that. Again, bad memory. Don't remember many things. But I think that that's like part of the attraction, not promotion thing. Like I saw that this guy had something that I wanted. Um, and I didn't know. I think I knew after the fact that why I was drawn to to that. But I didn't know it during during the time. Uh, and I think what it is, basically, I wanted he had he, he was completely honest and, and wasn't hiding anything when he was looking at me and that was like a foreign concept to me. I was always on guard. I was like shielded. I had to like keep you away. I, every, everyone was kept at arm's length basically. And this guy just was kind of like open and loving and kind. And that I remember uh, without even saying anything. I mean, all he said, it's going to get better. After that, I went on trip to Switzerland, the same exact thing that always happened, happened. And I came home and I had to go to a real rehab. So that was now my first inpatient rehab. And that's where I was really introduced to AA for the first time. That's where I went to my first meeting. Same thing. Like I remember just feeling really comfortable around these people, like a lot more comfortable. Basically, it's it's the same level of comfort that I felt when I took a drink. I would I had now as a result of the fellowship. And I didn't know that at the time either, that that's what that was. But AA has three sides of the triangle. Fellowship or unity is one. Service is another. And recovery of the steps is, is the third. And to me, like, I got hooked on fellowship right away because, like I said, I kind of felt at home. And I was like, wow, this is a completely different feeling. Like, I don't, I'm, this is uh, very foreign. And at the, by that point, the, the drinking didn't work anymore. I would get very depressed. Uh, given ant abuse uh, for a while and like I drank on that and that was even worse then I got sick and depressed depressed none of it was working it's like they say that you know that that drinking is fun fun with problems and then just problems so for me at that point it, drinking was just problems there was nothing good that resulted from me drinking but that was in 2002 Took me a while. I went back to school. I had to take three semesters off. I had to take a, a leave for, for mental health issues. And then I ended up graduating, moved to New York. And there, it, I didn't think my bottom could get much lower. Like I said, I'd, I'd been in some near-death situations and and it, it got lower. Now I was in New York. Now I was in, introduced to drugs. So cocaine became part of it. Alcohol was still my drug of choice, but that just put everything into like overdrive, you know? So I, I worked very hard in college and, and I got a good job offer and I lost my first job within three months. I had another backup offer or not a backup offer, but an offer coming out of college that I, that I declined to take the first one. So I took that, that one as the, as my second job, lost that job within three months. And that was in, I guess, 2003, 2004. And that's when I kind of I don't know why, but I, I'd been going to meetings this whole time. Like I'd been going in Boston. Uh, I went to New York. As soon as I got here, people were telling me, like, you need to go to meetings. Then in 2004, in October 2004, I went to meetings. I felt that fellowship thing click. I got into service now, too, which I had never been in before. So I was doing service at my home group on the Upper East Side, and I was going out with people uh, you know, after the meeting, I was going to diners. I was 
going on camping trips and rafting trips and Thanksgiving trips and all the, the fellowship of the program really kicked in and, and got me sober basically from 2004 to 2008. What I didn't do was the recovery part of it. So I've been told that like a three-legged stool with two legs, it probably won't be too stable. And that's my experience, you know, like for a while, for three and a half years, actually, fellowship and service kept me sober. But the the thing that I realize now is what the steps do, what the recovery does, is it that's where the change is. That's where the psychic change, the spiritual awakening, that's where it happens. If I come into AA and I, I hang out and I go to fellowship and I go I make coffee and I set up the chairs and I break down the room afterwards, that's all great. But I'm still the same person. Like my, my thoughts and my actions haven't really changed. Um, it's almost like I need to be washed. All that stuff that I've grown up with, all those character defects, basically, that I've been acting on that I wasn't aware of, those needed to be dealt with. And up until that point, I did not have a chance to do that. So in 2008, my dad got sick. He got lung cancer. And instead of going to more meetings, doubling down, uh, I went to the hospital to visit him in Long Island from, from New York. I was living in Manhattan at the time. And I stopped going to meetings. And I don't know if many people can relate to this, but you know what happens after you stop going to meetings. And it happened to me. I relapsed. And that's not rocket science. Like now, every time when I see somebody come back from a relapse and I hear the story, it's always the same story. I stopped going to meetings, dot, 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 and then some other details. But that one always is usually the same. So, yeah, so my dad got sick. He passed away. I was thought I was being very respectful by waiting until after the funeral to drink. And I called my sponsor at the time. I did have a sponsor, also super important, home group and sponsor. Like so for people just coming in, that really kind of grounded me. And so I called my sponsor and I said, I need 30 days. I need to clear my head. I need to just, you know, I'm going to go drink for 30 days. I can't deal. Uh, but 30 days, I'll be back and we'll pick up exactly where we left off. And he, <laughs> he was like, uh, good luck with that. I, I don't know how that's going to work out. And then he's told he's completely right because seven years later, right? So that was in 2008 or six years later uh, in November, 2014 is when I got sober again. The, the pain that I, that I felt in uh, leading up to that point and like all the experiences and putting my parents through all this stuff and, it just got really bad. Like I fell, fell over outside on a curb, a, a, a bouncer. I had some problems with bouncers for a while because I got completely wasted and they would say, Hey, you can't be here. They're like you have to leave. And I would fall over. So, you know, I was falling over on the concrete, bleeding out of my ear, brain hemorrhage, ICU. Boom. Called my mom and brother. They had to come do the same. It's like, it was, it was like, you know, those three and a half years that I had been sober, that they were really, really happy to see me sober, had just disappeared, basically. And I had picked up right where I left off. Then you know, it just got, it basically just got worse and worse. I developed a neurological condition. I don't know if it was as a result of that fall, but I, I needed some, there some brain, sur I had four brain surgeries between 2012 and 2014. And I didn't, uh, 
right before the last brain surgery, I was like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And it's not like anything had been worse or better than the previous day. I'd been going to meetings still. I went and I would keep raising my hand two days, five days, 20 days, one day, just kind of incomprehensible demoralization defined for me. And then I just don't know why, moment of grace, all God, I said, I'm going to listen to these people. So up to that point, I had heard these people and I really kind of, I always thought, oh, yeah, but, oh, yeah, I, that makes sense for them. But for you, you see, you, you see, for you, this doesn't really apply because blah, blah, blah. So that voice um, went away just for a second. And I said, OK, I'll do I'll do what you guys are telling me to do, because people were really concerned about me at this point with all this health issues that I was having. So I I basically found a group of people that I. The same thing with the guy in the in the outpatient rehab with the with the clear eyes. I found a, a group of people who had something that was very attractive to me that I didn't even know what the, what it was, but I knew I wanted what they had, and so I was willing to do what they did because I figured, hey, if they did these things to get what they what they currently have, then if I do these things, then maybe I can get something close to that, and that's where. I was saying before, I know personally for me, from being that person that I've been describing to being who I am now, that has to be God. That can't be anything else. It's not, it's not just not possible. I came in, did the first step, the first step, uh, I did multiple iterations of it, but the, the way that the first step really worked for me. Like I said, I had I had some trouble surrendering uh, when I first came in because I was in complete denial because I thought my life was manageable. But this exercise, my sponsor asked me to do, it's called a five and five. So he asked me to every day call him and leave him voicemail and tell him five ways in which my my. Uh, I was powerless over alcohol today, or alcoholism, actually, not just alcohol, alcoholism. And then five ways in which I make my life unmanageable today. So not how how my life is unmanageable, how I make my life unmanageable, like owning it, getting accountability for, you know, for the unmanageability, because it is, it, it, it all came from me. So that really kind of woke me up. And I was like, my life is unmanageable and it's all because of things that I do. You know, I do these things and, and I react and I get angry and I people please. And, uh, you know, and I make my life completely unmanageable outside of alcohol, even when I'm not drinking, you know, and that was the key, I think, because for me, I had to realize that my alcoholism has very little to do with alcohol. Liquor is but a symptom. What's actually the problem is the underlying, it's me. <laughs> it's like my attitudes, you know, it's my character defects. It's the way I treat people uh, when I'm not recovered, recovering or recovered, right? So, so we did these five and fives for a couple of weeks and that really kind of made it clear to me that, oh, wow, my, yeah, no, first step for sure. All of it, like first step, uh, first half, second half. 
And then in the second step, the second step I, I felt was a little bit easier because I had already, I had seen people like the first time I was in the program from two, in two, when I came in in 2008, I saw people come in and these people changed and these people had relationships and these people got married and had kids and had normal lives. So I saw like the transformation in others. I just didn't see it in myself because I wasn't doing the work. But again, like I knew that change was like bigger than like psychotherapy or, or, uh, you know, some kind of other methods. I knew that like a higher power was involved in that change. So to me, you know, having seen that uh, over the years in AA, I didn't struggle with that. Thank God. I was, I think, on the debating society for a while, and I tried to figure things out. And, you know, I wrote down my conception of God and then thinking I had to get it right and not realizing that it actually changes like by the second. My idea of God today is different than my idea of God yesterday. And that's great because it doesn't, you know, there's no right answer, basically. So I can't get stuck on anything. And another thing that my sponsor made me do is interview three people that I respected, whose sobriety and spiritual condition I respected, ask them about their conception of a higher power. And not only that, but how they got in touch with their higher power when they needed needed to. So I asked people, and I think the my favorite one was God speaks through people. I totally agree. You know, first step, the first word of the first step, we. Uh, and it goes back to like the fellowship thing that I was talking about. This is a like a we program, like sitting down at a meeting, regardless of anything else that's going on and me feeling better. That's a we program. Um, so God is in people. God, I think personally, I think God is deep inside me, deep inside of everyone. And then, in you know, when you start connecting with others and connecting with the world, that's when you really kind of see God. That's just my view of it. So that was the second step. The third step, we also did another one of these five and fives. So, uh, you know, five ways, five examples that my my will was aligned with God's will and five examples where my will was not aligned with God's will. And that's basically to get to get you to see like what does it feel like when you when i'm aligned with god's will i feel great that is the best feeling and i just a lot of times it's not even evident until after the fact but it just it feels really good um if i'm not and i'm in self-will i feel that too so it's kind of good to be able to identify both and to know i need to make a decision to turn my will and my life over to care of god basically and that just means my thinking and my actions. So if I'm going down a rabbit hole on, on a certain thought, like I need to, oh, hey, third step, align your will with God's. When I do that, then everything actually turns out all right. In the fourth step, we just did like the, you know, typical like five columns and just an inventory of all the resentments, all the fears, all of the sexual harms and then other harms done. And to me, probably, first of all, like the most important revelation I had was that all of my resentments were fueled by fear in some form or another. I don't, you know, can't explain it, but underneath every resentment is fear. So fear is really the issue. So oftentimes I, I pray to to get rid of the fear, whatever it is, if it's at work, if it's 
in my family, with friends, at meetings. I don't really like to share all that much. So I, before I raise my hand, please, God, just help me get rid of this fear. And that's that works. So the, the fear inventory itself, I I realized that a lot of the fears that I that I'm having that are holding me back are actually they're what my sponsor called like fake fears. They're actually not true. They're all in your mind, basically. So that was the, the, the fourth step, fifth step I shared that with my sponsor. Sixth and seventh, we kinda identified the character defects that were holding were holding me back and then the opposite action, you know, which is the solution. So to me, like a lot of, I had a lot of anger when I was first getting sober and I at times still do. And I had a lot of people pleasing issues, uh, which might be more like Alan on, because I grew up in a, in an alcoholic household. I don't know. And people pleasing, I never really considered to be all that bad. I thought I was just being like a nice person but my sponsor pointed out to me that it's actually very manipulative behavior because you're trying to make somebody like you and you're not being honest. It's dishonest. So you're hurting yourself. And that's why these resentments are building, you know, because you're not like being real, basically. So that really helped, like figuring, figuring that all out. And then in the eighth step, that was just a list of whatever was on the fourth step. And the ninth step, I think, is is when I started feeling i think the promises are after the ninth step for a reason because that's when i first started noticing the change because now i'm you know i'm going around making amends and that means to to change so i'm telling people that i've changed but i don't just tell people that i have to now act it too so yeah that gave me like some accountability in my life over time as i saw myself actually having changed and then realizing that, like seeing it in others is really easy, but seeing it in myself was uh, kind of groundbreaking. I was like, oh, my God, this really does work. So that was nine and then 10, 11 and 12 are kind of like the maintenance steps. And I've for, for 10, that's just like a, an in, a daily inventory. 11 is uh, meditation and prayer. And to me, I've taken like a lot of different ways uh, to look at that running was I got really into running after I, after I got sober. So that's almost the same thing as the playing soccer when I was a kid, finding something to make me feel connected. That's actually a healthy thing. So I found that. And then I found a lot of meditation within that running, just the breathing. I took some, some classes on meditation classes on like breath work and things like that. And that really worked too. And then 12 uh, is help another alcoholic and, and living these principles in our, in our affairs and helping another alcoholic. That is sponsorship to me, mostly. I mean, if you go to a meeting and you set up chairs, you're helping another alcoholic. That's 12-step 12, 12 work. But I think really sponsoring another man and, and seeing that person change and seeing the power of the program in that person is just it's an honor it's a privilege it's like i said powerful it's uh spiritual it's i it's i've i've been very blessed to see some people really kind of just complete 180s and i've seen some people not change and they they there it, it, it's kind of you, you see the program work or you see, you see the people that don't work the program it doesn't work which is also that's kind of 
a, a data point, I guess. But yeah, so to me, like what this program's done, it's given me a life. Uh, it is beyond my wildest dreams. I didn't think I would be living in New Jersey in a house, working at uh, at a consulting firm, and uh, with a, a wife and, and an eighteen month old baby. Seven years ago, I did not think that. And my wife is actually pregnant, so in July it'll be two babies, a boy and a girl. So the power of this program is, you know, until you experience it, and that's the other thing. Like, this is a very experiential program to me in theory you can read the big book and you can read other literature and you can learn some things but until you experience and until you actually go through the steps and until you go to enough meetings and and do enough service it's not the same once you experience something then you have uh, what's called what my sponsor calls sober reference basically and with sober reference, you can do a lot because that basically tells me you know, whatever situation I'm in right now, this too shall pass. I've experienced this before. Maybe not this same, this same exact uh, situation, but something just comparable. And I got through it. So why would this be any different? And so that's one of my favorite, my favorite phrases, this too shall pass, you know, especially when, when things aren't going all that well or maybe in the world things aren't as great as they could be but this too shall pass this will we will get through this you know yeah so i don't know i uh i think i've been rambling for a little bit um but i think that's 45 minutes so yeah again thank you very much for asking me to speak thank you stefan that was a treat to go through the 12 steps. And I know you were worried about going short and you did a fantastic job of walking us through your experience of those steps. Yeah. I have a few questions if you have more time. Yes. Fabulous. I want to ask you a question that you may or may not have the answer to, but would love to hear you talk about this finding something to make us feel connected. You had this from the beginning when you were young, right? You talked about it with um, soccer and just having this overwhelming, separate, disconnected feeling. And today you're, you know, you connect to the universe through your higher power and you mentioned running there at the end. Mm -hmm. Why do you think as a population, alcoholics have this innate desire or need to quote-unquote connect? Well, personally, I think alcoholics are, from my experience, very sensitive people. So they might be, or speaking for myself, I might be more in in tune with certain feelings that maybe the, the rest of the population isn't. You talked about when you first drank, that feeling of being released from your bondage of self. You talked about all you cared about was feeling good, right? Is it that you wanted to feel good or that the extreme disconnection felt so terrible that feeling better was necessary. So it's kind of the same question, yeah. but a different perspective. And then again, yeah. you talked about coming to the rooms and you felt a connection 
with these people. You felt that same release. Yeah, exactly. And that, yeah, so that's where I, I think the sensitive nature of, of alcoholics just kind of makes that sense of disconnection that probably everybody has to some extent. But for us, it's overwhelming. For me, it's much more apparent and and kind of drastic. So I need to find a solution for it. So if I do find a solution, then I jump, I go all in. You talked about your mom being in Al-Anon, but you mm-hmm. weren't exposed to AA through her. I have never been to an Al-Anon meeting. Obviously, I, I know the, the premise. Do they have the same language as us? Yeah, I think the 12 steps, I mean, I, so I don't go to Al-Anon either. I've gone to a couple of meetings, but I, I do think they, it's actually treated, if you go to AA personally, I think it, it, it treats the same problem. I think with Al-Anon, it's basically focusing on relationships and powerlessness over people. Um, whereas in AA, obviously it's more about alcohol, but I mean, the same answer can be applied. So that's why I've, I've gone to a few Al-Anon meetings, but to, to me, AA is kind of like the, um, home base, uh, for everything. But I imagine growing up, if she was active from 89 on, she was like using these tools to raise you, no? Yeah, we, um, so we actually on the, our refrigerator in the kitchen, I remember, living every once in a while we'd see these slogans, and I think they were mostly aimed at my dad, you know. Um, but I think for for when when I started drinking when I was fourteen, all of her attention kind of shifted from my dad to me, and I do remember these like very subtle kind of like serenity prayer. All of a sudden, I'd see it on the on the refrigerator: "Live and let live." these other kind of very subtle hints that I now recognize, you know, but I think at, at the time, I don't, maybe she didn't want to get too involved in my life. I mean, you know, I think she, she basically thought that I should be dealt with by professionals, you know, people who go to rehab or outpatient rehab. I'd been to plenty of those. She, she tried to carry the message in a very subtle way without, kind of overwhelming i imagine she learns boundaries in al-anon i i <laughs> yeah, yeah that too yeah. boundaries exactly. stay within your uh what is it hula hoop yeah so this is a random question you, so german was your first language you still speak german yeah and have you ever said the serenity prayer in german i have not actually i went to one uh so in switzerland i, I come from this the german speaking part of Switzerland. And I did go to one meeting there in German. So I, I'm sure I've said it. Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember it though. I have to be honest. So you couldn't say it right now. I couldn't. I wish I could. Oh, damn. Is your mom still alive? Yes, she is. How is your relationship today? Oh, it's great. I mean, we've, I've always been like the young, the younger, the, the youngest and, um, maybe a little bit of the, uh, a problem child, but <laughs> only more difficult than my than my older brother. So that's where I was saying, like in the ninth step, that's where I feel it most is with her, mm-hmm. because our relationship is completely different. It used to be all like her attitude towards me used to be 
you know, they say in like the St. Francis prayer, like rather comfort than be comforted. Yeah. Like I was just comfort. She comforted me. That's, that was our only job in life. And it, it was grueling and, and exhausting. And now I get to comfort her, you know? And like, that's what I'm saying. Like when I take a step back and I, I, re- I realize that I'm actually doing that now, that's when I know like, Hey, this, this really works. There's no doubt. That's so touching as a mother of three boys. That's extremely touching to me. <laughs> Hopefully she'll get to hear this story of yours and that portion. So I have couple more questions. I want to say congratulations on baby number two coming and your 18-month-old son. Thank you. They're going to be super close in age. That's going to be fun. I really appreciated how you explained the old you and the new you and how that's a spiritual awakening. You're talking about yourself as if you were talking about a character in a movie and like, yeah, yeah, I did those things and that was me. But I was in there somewhere, but that wasn't me. Like, I don't even know who I'm talking about right now. Um, yeah. You're a guy, so your guy friends wanted to party with you and egg you on. And I'm a woman and did the same, well, I was a young girl, and did the same dumb shit. But my friends were right. like, we can't hang out with her. She drinks too much and does dumb shit. So women and men are very different in that. Yeah. Yeah, the number of times I woke up in the woods or some <laughs> with, like, branches hanging off of me, you know, in high school especially, <laughs> That was just, uh, yeah, this is not, thank God I made it through that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a beautiful life. Final question for the newcomer that is perhaps struggling with step one, like you did, what message would you like to leave with them? I think keep coming back, keep going to meetings. doesn't matter. Get your hand up. and. It works if you work it. That's the one thing I realized because I've, I've tried it a couple of different ways. The first way, I didn't really work and I got drunk. And the second way, I actually really dedicated my life to sobriety and I, recovery and the program and the people and my sponsor. And then it worked, you know? So to me, it's like it's black and white. Um, but that's what I was saying. Like, that's the experiential part. I think after. Doing it, you know, kind of being in in AA for a little while, you realize that. But at the beginning, you just kind of just have faith that it works. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.